Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're revisiting some of our most memorable author conversations of the year so far. You can find the full list of author interviews on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Let us know what you're reading this summer. Now, on to the show. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Later in the hour, we hear from Willie Mae Brown. She is a visual artist and author of My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. But first, we listen back to our conversation with Chastin Buttigieg. He is a teacher and author and husband of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. His recently republished book is I Have to Tell You Something for Young Adults. He joined us in June to talk about Pride Month and his message to the LGBTQ youth. I Have to Tell You Something was originally published in 2020, and today we're actually talking about the young adult version. You completely rewrote this book for young adults. Why did you decide to do that, and what was that process like? Yeah, I I started rewriting it over two years ago, and I really wanted to write a copy of the book, I Wish I Could Travel Back in Time and Hand My Younger Self. And when I started writing it over two years ago, the political climate was not the way it is today. And so I was um, just thinking about, you know, young Chastin, what could have been helpful for him and having been around the country and having the opportunity to meet with lots of other young, especially queer people, I knew that we needed more stories like this. Um, But I had no idea (laughs) that when the book came out, this is this would be sort of the topic du jour. And how has the response has been like so far? It's been phenomenal. I think I'm coming up on 30 cities and, uh, you know, I've done the big coastal cities, which have been phenomenal. I didn't get to go on a book tour, an in-person book tour for the first one because of COVID. So I've enjoyed traveling and meeting with people. But the response, especially in redder states, I've been to Florida twice, Texas, Missouri, I'm going to Tennessee this weekend. Um, and that that response has been so um, heartening to me. Um, people are so exhausted and beaten down by the politics. And just to have that space and that community, even for an hour or two, um, is really necessary. Um, and now that it's Pride Month, I, I think folks even more are searching for that community and that belonging. And to know that um, people are fighting for them and going to show up for them in red states, too. Right. And I think there is a lot of support, right, as you're as you're saying, very hopeful, very heartening. But at the same time, we we are still hearing voices on the other side. You know, with what you just said and uh, with what we were just talking about, how would you like to see LGBTQ plus history and studies taught in schools? And how do you think schools should recognize Pride Month? Yeah, you know, I wonder what my life would have been like had I read about people like Bayard Rustin or Marsha P. Johnson or Harvey Milk in school, had I known that there were other people like me out there who came before me, right, who had made these huge strides um, politically, personally, um, 
but I, I had never heard of them because I was growing up in a rural conservative place where we didn't talk about LGBTQ people. And I was raised to believe that something about me was wrong. That's why I kept it hidden for so long. And I think behind so many of these, you know, quote unquote controversies um, are some people still not believing that LGBTQ people are equal members of society. And you break many of these discussions down. I imagine what it would be like if the script was reversed. Would any parent be upset that a video featured straight people saying, I love being straight. I like knowing that it's okay to be straight. Um, it makes me feel good that people affirm that it's okay to be straight, right? Um, nobody would be pulling their kids out of school if um, there was a video shown where uh, straight people are talking about being straight because that's almost every video. So behind that are just some people who are still uncomfortable with the fact that LGBTQ people exist, even though they may not think that, uh, they, they may not think that they themselves are, you know, bigoted or small minded. But if you're, if you're upset about the fact that there is a video that exists where, you know, someone is just saying, I like to be affirmed in my identity or something that is making it easier for people to see the light at the end of the tunnel especially young people who we know in this country are at a much higher rate of suicidal ideation, especially amongst LGBTQ people. And so behind all of this, I think, is this need to uh, humanize LGBTQ people and realize that we are, we've always been here, we will always be here, we're not going anywhere. And I believe that LGBTQ people should be treated as equal members of society. And I think you mentioned you know, comfort space, and I also wonder if if kids are so much better and adapted in in showing who they are or voicing who they are. I certainly feel like I've talked to a lot of young people, and I I always I always wonder like, man, you know, when I was your age, I can't talk about the things that you're talking about, yeah. or I can't articulate what I'm feeling as as. Um, as so like professional that these kids are able to do, and not just yeah. with their family, a lot of them are talking to the media, so I just can't imagine what's going through their minds. But you mentioned safe space, and I think for a lot of young people, schools are a safe space. You know, they have their peers, they have teachers who may support them. So how do you think schools should recognize Pride Month? Do you think schools have a space for that? Well, look, we still need a Pride Month because, as we mentioned, there are still people in this world who are trying to make it harder for LGBTQ people to exist. The data shows us that one in two trans kids will contemplate taking their life. Um, it is a known fact that in some areas of this country, it is still unsafe to be LGBTQ. Uh, I remember when I was about nine years old learning about Matthew Shepard and his murder. Uh, Matthew Shepard, who was taken in a pickup truck and left for dead, tied up to a fence post. And I was growing up around a lot of pickup trucks and fence posts. And while my life has changed, my story has changed, there are still a lot of people in pockets of the country, especially like the ones I grew up in, that are wondering if it's truly okay to be themselves. And until we can all say that, yes, LGBTQ people are equal members of society, then that's why we that's why we march. That's what Pride Month is for, to recognize that um, there is a, a portion of American citizens who are still asking for their rights and who are still asking to be equal members of society. And back to your book, you also describe multiple journeys in realizing your own identity. Can you talk about what that experience was like, especially because you also talk about certain ways that you had to hide and, and mask your true self? I wonder if that would resonate with a lot of people. 
Yeah. I mean, I just didn't know who to be. I, some of my early uh, role models were Ellen DeGeneres on television and Will and Grace. And what I was taking from that was, you know, maybe you could be gay, but you should probably be funny. And so I really leaned into performance. I tried to make everyone feel good about my existence. So I tried to be funny. I tried to be entertaining. Um, but I was also growing up in a more rural place. We were, uh, my family was heavily involved in 4-H. So I was raising cows from a young age. Um, there's a chapter in the book titled, I'm not a cowboy, but but yeah, I was playing all of these roles. I was just trying to figure out who to be so I could safely exist amongst everybody else. Um, my peers at school or my church group or my 4-H group. And I, I just felt like for 18 years, I was just pretending to be many different versions of Chaston because I was afraid that if anyone found out this big secret about me, I would lose it all. And I definitely feel that resonating around the country with young people who wonder if it's okay to be themselves. And then I will meet 70, 80-year-old couples um, at the signing line who still don't recognize this country, um, the progress that this country has made, and then sort of the regression that this country is experiencing. You also wrote that most often the fear of rejection or even violence pushes people further into the closet and forces them to hide their truest self from those who don't believe that LGBTQ plus people are equal citizens, worthy of being treated equally and with dignity. So Chastin, I want to ask, you know, how do you think homophobia gets internalized? And in your experience, what was the result of that or the consequences of that? Yeah, well, you know how we were just talking about sort of this newer generation kind of wondering why the adults are so bothered by someone that might be LGBTQ or wondering why it's such a huge deal. And I think not even for folks in our generation, but for an older generation, we were taught that being LGBTQ is bad. Um, when you, for me, spent I spent 18 years of my life believing that something about me was wrong or broken, um, asking God why he would have done this to me and wondering whether or not there was truly a path forward for me. So when you are constantly surrounded by that hate and you soak up that hate for almost two decades of your life, you kind of start to hate yourself. And so much of that experience busting down the closet door was, yes, feeling the freedom of being able to be myself, but also coming to terms with the fact that I was allowed to love myself and I really hadn't loved myself for almost 20 years. And so that homophobia seeps in and it, it tells you that you are unworthy of all of those things. Um, which is why it's so important to tell the people in your life that they are loved unconditionally and from a very early age so that we don't go throughout our life wondering if we're going to lose all of the people who say they love us once they find out you know, who we truly are, once we are able to share our most authentic selves with them. And one of the central parts of your book was talking about your experience coming out to your parents, you know, speaking of being in a space to do that. Yeah. And and being told certain things. Now, this was a conversation you first had with your mom. Can you describe yeah. to us how that conversation went? Yeah. I, well, I didn't really have the guts to come out to my parents face to face. So I wrote a letter and I remember packing my bags and um, I, I walked into the living room and I handed my mom the letter uh, and I apologized. I remember saying, I'm so sorry. And then I left. Um, I, I got my car and I drove away. And one of the really important stories that I get to tell on the on the book tour is how, you know, after a couple of months of crashing on my friend's couches or floors or in my car, my parents called me home. Um, they wanted to keep me alive. They cared about me and keeping me alive and my health and safety more than the opinions of 
their friends or their church group or their community. Um, and it's that unconditional love that truly saved my life because I was not in a good place. I, I didn't really see much of a path forward. Um, so I'm so grateful that I get to share their story of progress and their allyship, willing to learn and unlearn some things because they cared more about the, their love for their child um, than anything else. You talked about how your mom had a hard time accepting that you were gay in the beginning, and but you described her as well-meaning. So can you help us understand yeah. what you meant by that? Because I think it, it really points out to the fact that acceptance for some people, it's a process um, and it's an ongoing mm -hmm. one at that, right? Yeah. So I have always tried to, especially in my you know public life and political work, I have always tried to... Um, think about building a bridge for other people to get to the right side of history. And I know sometimes we just want to like take the two by four and whack someone over the head with it. But I try to focus on laying the two by four down and building the bridge. And my parents were so loving. They were like the loud, uh, well, especially my mom, like the loud goofy mom. She brought snacks to all the football games and the baseball games. And she was always there on opening night for a play. And, you know, my parents were the ones that always hosted cast parties or, you know, uh, um, tailgate parties. They were just so giving and loving, but we didn't talk about LGBTQ people. We never talked about it. And so I always assumed that that love was conditional, that should they find out that I was gay because of everything I was learning in school and church was telling me that I was wrong and broken and, you know, destined for hell. Um, I knew that once I came out that I would lose them and they were really, I, they were well-meaning people, but we just never talked about accepting LGBTQ people. And so my parents too, their world was, their world was shaken as well, because like I write in the book, nobody hopes for a gay kid. That's what I thought. But what my parents proved to me was that the love and the safety of your child is worth so much more than maybe the dreams that they had of me, you know, having a wife and kids, you know, in the white picket fence. Well, now I just have a husband and kids um, and the minivan. Um, so they had the, they had to unlearn a lot of things that I think a lot of people need to unlearn. And that starts with meeting people where they're at, having the opportunity to hear their story, learn from them, empathize with them, walk a little bit in their shoes and see that, the only things that LGBTQ people want are the same things that everybody else wants. Love, safety, community, the right to exist, the freedom to walk down the sidewalk and not be afraid that you'll get murdered or that, you know, it's not okay to hold the hand of the person that you love. Um, I, I hear from a lot of teachers who, who have mentioned that students who have, who have, students have said that if, if the teachers identify as LGBTQ plus and are open to it, it helps the students a lot in terms of acceptance and being themselves yeah. and being comfortable in the classroom. So I would love to know what are your thoughts about LGBTQ plus teachers carrying that burden on top of everything else? But it also yeah. sounds like a case by case basis to me. You know, what do you think? Everything, everything that I talk about, it's important to preface that safety should always come first. Mm. You know, you should only come out if it's truly safe too. Um, only have conversations with people about acceptance and equality if it is truly safe to. And for other people, you know, you can't just say like, come out of the closet. You know, people are counting on you because it might not be safe for them. When I was going to high school, I now know that some of the teachers I had in high school are gay or, or were gay. Um, 
I guess still are gay, (laughs) but they weren't out when I was in high school. And I sometimes think about what that would have meant for me walking down the hallways, getting called the slurs, getting shoved into lockers, you know, getting pushed down to the floor in gym class. Um, Had I seen someone, you know, happily partnered and they had a career and I would have had someone to look up to uh, a role model, but I had none and they were terrified of losing their jobs. Um, and, you know, when I was a teacher in the classroom, it was never a, a, a part of my identity, you know, that I felt like I was advertising, but there was a picture of, you know, my husband behind my desk next to the pictures of my dogs and, you know, all of the other little knickknacks that you put behind your desk as a teacher, um, in the hopes that, you know, somebody might see that and know like, oh, well, look at him. He went to college, he got married, he has, you know a dog and he's doing well. And that just means a lot to someone to see, to look up and see someone that made it out, you know? At the end of your book, you offer a list of questions for teachers and parents. And one of those questions is, should LGBTQ plus people have to come out to their peers and communities? Yeah. Related, literally what we're just talking about. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you should only come out if you want to come out. Like that's your information. That's your private information. But also like straight people don't come out. You know, straight people don't have to come out. They don't have to work up the courage to share this information about them wondering whether or not they're going to lose their friends or lose their family or lose their jobs or their housing or their security. And so the idea is that you don't have to tell people. Also, you don't have to have a coming out party or you don't have to write the letter or you don't have to sit your family down and tell them because that is your information. And I felt like coming out, especially for my generation, was sort of like a confession. Mm. Like, here's this piece of information I have and it and it belongs to the world. And so it is my obligation to share it. And I disagree. I think we put too much pressure on people to talk about you know, something that belongs to them. And sadly, we have to end this conversation soon. But I do want to oh, ask no. you, la- I know we're having such a good time. <laughs> I want to ask you last question. Just um, is there a message or is there something that you would like to share with our listeners or just with young people, too, in general? Uh, what what do you hope that they, they get out from this book or even just from this conversation? Something yeah. that you would like to say to them? Well, for young people, one, I'm so sorry on behalf of all the adults that some people are focused on making your life harder right now rather than easier. And for the adults, please tell your kids that you love them unconditionally. Even if you think you're the kindest, biggest hearted person, um, unless you have sat them down and told them, I will love you no matter what, whether you're gay, straight, bi, trans, whether you want to be you know, a football player, a mathematician. I will love you unconditionally. I will always be here for you. That conversation can take 10 seconds and it can truly change and save lives. That was author and teacher Chastin Buttigieg. You can find more information about his book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. We've got to take a short break. Coming up, we'll talk with Willie Mae Brown, author of My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. This is where we live. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Willie Mae Brown is an author and visual artist based in New York City. She recently published her first book, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. Where We Live producer Tess Terrible spoke to her about her time growing up in Selma, Alabama, and how the civil rights era shaped her coming of age and her message for the next generation of activists. I wanted to write because there was something that had happened in my hometown where I lived in Selma, Alabama. And I thought that, you know, as we get older and we remember so much, it, it just changes when you're, you're getting older, your thoughts come to you again. And, and you say, well, you know, what about that? You know, let me talk about that to people. And I wanted the history of the way we lived to be recorded. And when I would speak to other people about doing it, they would say, you know, that's over. That's gone. No, no one's thinking about that right now. It's too much going on to be thinking about that. And I thought, I don't want these people to forget what they went through and how hard it was to get by sometimes, although my family was pretty good. And... As I said, something had happened there, and I thought that everybody that had lived there and was still alive, I felt that they had an obligation to record, and I was one of those people that should record what it, what, what had happened. I started writing a long time ago these stories, and because I'm not that organized, I keep things in my head, and I started writing, I think it was about 12 to 15 years ago, and my manuscript was lost in my purse. Someone took it from me. And um, I started again. And I started writing the history of my family and some of the things that I loved about Selma, how I felt it made me feel. That's that's why I, I wanted to write it, because it was important. You call the book, and, and you talk about that in, in your intro, you call it My Selma, and I'm wondering if you can explain that title to us and, and your understanding that everyone has a unique memory of a place, and that place in this book, of course, is Selma, Alabama. I, I named it My Selma because I took ownership of what had happened with us and with me at the age that I was. It's my Selma because 
I live in New York and it's my New York. It's how we move through the place where we are, what we see, what we do. And it gives ownership. This is what happened to me. This is what I remember. And so two, three, four, five people probably see the same thing, but the expression of it is different with everyone. So through my eyes, this is my Selma. Can you describe what your your Selma looked like and what the lives of your your family and your parents looked like? I when reading your book um, and uh, learning about Selma, and that's a place I've never been. There just seemed like a very, very good sense of community there and a, a big shared purpose in the in the community that you were part of. You're right. We were shared a shared um, community. We helped each other. We all knew what had happened and how we got there and where we came from. And no one was better than the other person. And Selma is a beautiful place. It still is. I know that recently it has gone through a lot of things, but it was a beautiful place. We had a car, so we was able to drive around and really take a good look at Alabama. Selma, the Orville, the Tyler, all of these places, Beloit and and Hazen, Alabama. We we had the opportunity to go and look around and see what was going on and how beautiful it was. I'm glad you asked me that because I remember when I first came to New York and uh, I saw pomegranates on the stands at the at the fruit stands and I thought oh my goodness they want this amount when we just went to the country and just pulled one off the tree you know and you know just ate it but it's a beautiful place the people join together they eat together they went to school together we we did all of those things and we had friends and our lives were okay, we knew that something was in the midst because it had started long before uh, the 60s. But it wasn't as intense as we were growing up. Did your did your family, did your parents ever, um, were they able to articulate to you what was happening as you were were growing up, it, it seems like, you know, the civil rights movement really was coming, um, you know, into into power and, and into play really in conjunction with your coming of age. I've always wanted someone to ask me that question. I remember my mom and I were walking from a grocery store in the neighborhood And as we were crossing First Avenue, she said to me, you know, we're not going to have these buses much longer because they are going to boycott them. And that was the first time that I had heard that word. And she said, and a lot of things are going to change because, you know, these people don't want us to have anything. They don't want us to do anything, but we're not going to ride in these buses that, that much longer. So... You know, I just want you to know that. And I heard what she said. 
And it did not impact me at all. You know, I was a child. I had something in my hand that I really wanted to get busy with. And uh, she, when we were coming up the steps at, at our house, we, it wasn't far from the store where we were, she said, you all keep that radio on, you know. And I thought, that's a great thing because I love music. But she wasn't telling us just to keep it on, to hear the music, listen to what is going on. And we didn't have, I don't think at that time, we didn't have a TV. But we had like two or three um, radios in the house and we would keep them on. And we soon got a television and that that was it. Everything stayed on because we had to know what was going on. And then my father bought... Uh, a subscription to magazines and to the uh, Selma Public, uh, Selma uh, Times Journal so that we could read it and um, know what was going on. We also had a war at that time, too, um, the Vietnam War. So we need, we had a lot of things to, to watch for and to listen for. Mm. One of my um, favorite parts of your book is just how um, illustrative you are and you talk about... Um, how you want to show, you want people to hear, see, and smell the injustice, which was so powerful to me because often we don't think about the smells and the hearing. We don't think about those senses when we think of um, things like like injustice. But um, I found your book so so immersive in in that, and I was wondering if you could talk about those scents and those things that you heard and those you know, things that connect you back to that sense of place? All the five senses work together. When you see something, you know, in the streets that is not pleasant or it is pleasant, you remember that. You you can remember what you were doing and how it came upon you to see, you know, someone step on the petal of a rose and um, the smell that it might come out of there, even though you don't smell it, you know that there's a smell there. Everything opens up in the senses. Um, this this movement, it had a sense of smell and touch and fear, all of that stuff together. So what I... I wanted the sounds also to be in that. And when you come into Selma, when I when, when it, whenever we left Selma to go to Montgomery or another place and you come back into Selma, it had its own smell. You know, it, it smelled of like pine and swamp because we had, you know, little water streams in, on the roads, and it smelled of, it smelled right. When the movement came, you had those smells, you had those feelings, and they felt right, but they were not. Something was going on. And it's hard to try to get people to smell something that you've experienced. The best thing to do is to just put it in words, 
find some things, some words to express how it smelled. Selma had a hum also because it was so quiet and it was almost as if the earth was talking to us. It was like humming. And I've asked other people about that and they said, yes, it did. It did have a hum to it. So, yeah. I'm wondering how did you eventually grasp the extent of um, what was happening around you and also the violence that was happening towards black men and women growing up around you? I listened to the talk um, when my mother and my father would talk. He worked for the Southern Railroad and he would come home sometimes and just sit on the front porch, which he loved really a lot. You could just sit on your front porch at night. No one bothered you. You could sleep on the front porch without it being screened in. You didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a lot of um, violence like that. People walking up on your porch. They may even join you and sleep there with you. You had to be careful. But um, I would listen to what they had to say. And having journalists like um, the ones we had back then, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, we always knew the truth. The journalist told us the truth about what was going on and word for word. So you knew. And it was always in your face. It was always in your ears. Someone was always talking about someone who had left town because they could not deal with what was going on with the white people or um, they decided to move somewhere else. So we heard it. And we had the TV then, and and we had the radio, and we had the conversation of our um, elders. We listened. I did. And it was in school. And when the when the when the talk started happening, and the um, students from other cities started coming in, we knew that the change, and we heard it in church. We were. We were kept up by our elders and preachers and friends. And, you know, it wasn't something that we talked about every day, but you knew it was there. Willie Mae Brown is an artist and author of her recently published book, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. We'll hear more from her after the break. I'm Tess Terrible, and this is Where We Live. We'll be right back. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tess Terrible. Willie Mae Brown left Selma, Alabama at age 17 to start a new life. But her memories of growing up in the South at the height of the civil rights era stayed with her. She explores her memories, experiences, and hopes in her book, My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. Willie Mae spent one summer babysitting for a single mother named Peggy Nichols. One afternoon, she went with Peggy and her children to the laundromat. In the book, she talks about this day and how it changed her life. 
I asked her about that experience and why it was so important to retell it in her book. Yeah. And here we are. I had um, started working for a woman. She's a very nice woman, too. She had a trailer in Selma. She had two beautiful children. And I wanted something to do to make more money. And she was just a good-hearted person. She, she, because she was not prejudiced. She didn't see it in other people. And sometimes you forget that. You know, you just don't think about it. And I, I didn't think about it either sometimes. So we go over to the, um, get the kids together and we go over to the laundromat. And she said, you take this bag of clothing and I'll follow you. Can I get the kids together? I'll follow you and I'll go and take the rest of the, the laundry in. So, hey, I'm a kid. I get the bag, the, the bag of clothing and her, she, had, she had a son, <clears throat> excuse me, that had a, you know, he would wet the bed. And I brought it into the the store, the front store. And um, I saw that there was a man there. I didn't pay him any mind because I have a passport to come into the store. My passport is this white woman of color allows me to go wherever I want to go with her. And I drop down on my knees. I start sorting things out and the smell was overwhelming, but I did it anyway. And I noticed that this guy was walking. He had about three rows rows of uh, laundry uh, machines and he was walking back and forth. And I could hear him humming something or mumbling something, but I didn't pay him any mind. I got a right to be here. And so he comes through my row and he stands over me after pacing up and down for a while. And he comes over and he stands by up in front of me so I'm not going to look him in the face because we didn't look white folks in the face a lot of times. And this is a adult, whether he's black or white, I'm, he's standing there. I'm sure he's going to try to help me with what I'm doing. But let me wait to see what it is that he wants. So I'm just picking the clothes and putting them away. And he said something to me. And I didn't hear him. And he took a stance, and his stance was, one of his hands was hanging lower, and the other one was, it just seemed like one hand on his body was stiffer than the other, almost tensed. And he's, I know he's staring at me, and I'm looking at his shoes. They're black and his socks are black. And he had on a silver gray pair of pants. And I kind of glanced up 
just enough not to look into his face. And I caught his chin and I caught the slit in his mouth and it was wet. Corners were wet and he was breathing hard and he was in good shape, it seemed. But there was something about his hand, the one that didn't move. And I was told from my heart, something's wrong. And he said, I'm not going to ask you anymore. Now I've asked you once. And I want you out of my place. And everything changed at that moment. And I said to myself, why is he calling me this? I, I, I actually looked around the room because those clothes in, in my heart, I'm saying, I didn't do this. I didn't bring this up in here to make you angry with me or so. I'm, I'm a child. What, what, what do I do? And my life force said, you need to get up and leave. He's dangerous. And now I remember why the arm was so tense. Because he was going to use that weapon to get me out of the store. And I couldn't fight him. His hands were bigger than mine. His arms were stronger. So I had to find a weapon of my own. My daddy wasn't there. The passport was outside in the car with the kids, not knowing what was going on. And I was compelled to move and to stand up. And suddenly, it just was the strangest thing. It's like yesterday, I'm seeing it now. Something started moving in front of me. It was not him because he was still in position, in a position like a like I was prey and the mouth was still wet. And I glanced just a little bit further and I could see his hair. And it, it's just strange how that happened. This thing that came between us was like an effervescent and it bubbled and just parted me from him. And I stood up and I raised my arm because I thought that if his was one, mine could be one too. And I stretched it out with my index finger pointing to him to stay back. And I'm going to get out of here. Just let me get out of here. I didn't want the negativity that he had in himself. It was fierce. He was serious. And I started walking backwards. And then I heard the woman, she said, please, please, Willie Mac, please just go. Come on. And I kept walking back. I couldn't walk. I, I didn't want to turn my back on him because I didn't trust him, because I knew who he was. So I, I got out of there, and the woman came in, 
And she passed by me and I saw her, but I didn't see her. And I bumped into the back of the car and the kids were in there. And they said, Willie Mae, did you have fun in there? And I'm like, what? And I'm looking at them. They said, you're smiling. Did you have fun in there? And I didn't, I thought I was mean. I thought I, not mean, I thought I was angry. And how could they see a smile on my face? But it was the effervescence that was in me. It was the, it was the will to step out of his world and to step into my own. Because had I stepped into his, I may not be talking to you. I think going going through a coming of age, and especially going through that transition of being a girl and becoming a woman, is difficult under normal circumstances, and it sounds impossible and and just so overwhelming under the circumstances that you were growing up. And when I was reading that moment in your book, I was wondering if this is kind of the defining moment where you really went from being a young girl to being a young woman. And you know, Tess, I appreciate it. I really do appreciate it because there are 10 worlds that we can live in from hell to heaven. And if you jump into the world that another person is in, you're going to do your battle right there. Human revolution is something that we all go through. And in order to go through your human revolution, it doesn't matter what age you are, go through it. Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. But you got to know how to keep going. You know how you have to know how to maneuver like we did this movement. It was nonviolent. It is hard to say, I'm not going to fight back. It is hard to take a blow with a billy club that some of my friends and family members may have taken and say it's hard. It's hard not to carry a piece of iron on you when someone is telling you that we don't want you here. We don't need you. We're not going to allow you to come into the front door. You have to stay at the back. We have to stop that stuff. And these people are hurting too. And if we become as bitter as them, we'll never get better. Black people... And white people, a lot of them do the same thing to people. What is your your message to uh, the next generation? You write that you want this next generation to remember the people that have fought for our rights so you can take care of the future. Explain to our listeners um, what that means to you. The past can always be repeated. And as a journalist, you know that things are happening now in parts of the world in America where books are being banned. We, as people, 
who have a constitution, we, we, we should be um, aware that we are the people. And we don't want to be behind the scenes. We want to be right there where things are happening. I want the this generation, and it may be hard for them to do it because there's so much that they have. And, and we didn't have the technology that is now available. But what we had in the past were knowledgeable people like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And these people helped us, and they were young. And all of these movements that, that we had in wars, they were fought by young people, you know. So I want the people of this generation to not forget what has happened. Be you a person from Pakistan or a person from Ireland, person from Africa or America, don't forget what happened. Because when you forget, it gives ammunition to the people who forgot also how things were and how controlling they had been. They don't want to lose that. We have to remain cohesive. We have to Be quiet. And when you want to talk, make sure you're talking to the right people. You just can't go out here and just protest the way you want to. You have to be organized. We were organized. We didn't know anything, but we had mine. And we followed leaders that were really not trying to get anything else done except for the right to vote, equality, and to be a human being as we are. If that's what you're working for, you're going to have a good fight, a really good fight. That was Willie Mae Brown, author of My Selma, True Stories of a Southern Childhood at the Height of the Civil Rights Movement. You can find the full list of our author interviews and their works on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. To listen back to all your favorite Where We Live conversations, download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible and Katie Pellico. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>